Now, if you're here this morning and you need a Bible, let me invite you to just raise your hands wherever you're sitting, and uh, we've got ushers who will uh, bring you a copy of the Bible if you, you'd be helped to follow along with us in the Word of God this morning. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we want this to be our gift to you. Uh, so please take this Bible as your own, uh, read it, study it, enjoy it, meditate on it, obey it. Uh, this is the Word of God, and this is how God speaks most clearly to His people is in His Word. And so just hold your hands up, keep them up there. We'll bring them. That's the last one. Okay, so y'all members, next time bring your Bible. I saw some members with their hands up. Bring, bring your Bible next time. <laughs> If you're visiting with us this morning, you have joined us in a series on spiritual warfare. Now, if you're not a Christian, you may not be familiar with that term. And even if you are a Christian, you may not have had a lot of teaching or preaching on, on the subject. I'm convinced that's a significant mistake. That if we're Christians, if we've not thought about this, or we've been pastors and have not preached about this, that's a significant mistake because this warfare is real and it's everywhere. The Bible teaches us that we have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is a pattern of thinking and believing and acting that's contrary to God, in fact, is hostile to God. And it's this fallen world that we live in. So all of society, all of culture, every person, every, every group is affected by sin. Our thoughts are misshaped by sin. Our feelings are misshaped by sin. Our actions are misdirected by sin. Everything is touched by sin in this world. Now, the, the second enemy is what's called the flesh. That's not referring specifically to our physical flesh. It's a word that's used sometimes to refer to the fact that we have a sin nature, that the world that's been affected by sin, well, we've been touched by it too. We are fallen creatures who are not now in this fallen state, naturally inclined to obey God and to serve God. In fact, the Bible says in our minds we are hostile to God if we're not yet Christians. And then the third enemy is the devil. He's real. He's not a cartoon character. Doesn't carry a pitchfork and have a long pointy tail. He and his fallen angels actually masquerade as ministers of light. They present themselves as appealing, as desirable, as attractive. And he has one mission, to still kill and destroy. He particularly hates Christ and hates Christ's people. And they are waging war against Christ's people. They are defeated. The, the outcome of the war is not in doubt. Christ has victor victoriously won the war on the cross at Calvary and, and in the resurrection. He has crushed Satan's head. He will renew the world. He has put to death our flesh and given us a new heart through faith in him. But yet they rage. And the effects of this war is everywhere. Listen, listen beloved. Do not think that the problems we face in our community are merely problems of our own making. Many of them are, but not merely so. Do, do not think that the problems we face in our community are, are problems merely caused by people outside of our community. Some of them are, but not merely so. Behind the problems that we see every day on every block of our community, the, the addiction, the, the violence, the, the murders, 
the, the abandonment and neglect of children, uh, all the things that we see ravaging our community, behind them is a demonic power. Behind them is satanic power. Behind them is an enemy that looks to devour everyone he can. And do not think it just affects the world and not the church. Think about the ways in which you look up sometimes and you just feel harassed and struggling and and you don't know why. There are no natural explanations for it. And, And yet you just feel shrouded in darkness pressed as if in a vice grip. Or, or the, own, the struggles that, that we have too with sin, mental health issues, all kinds of things may be evidences of spiritual warfare affecting God's people. So we have need to think about this biblically and carefully. And to do that, we want to continue our series in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 looking primarily at verses 1 to 6. And we want to be reminded that Christ has given us weapons for fighting this warfare. And we're going to fight this fight, as we've been saying in previous sermons, with the Word of God. We're going to fight this fight in the fellowship of God's people. And here we have another weapon. We don't think of it as a weapon often, but I want us to see that it is in this text this morning. And that weapon is obedience. That obedience to Christ is a weapon at our disposal for continuing in the victory that Christ has won for us. And we see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Look there with me. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. I want us to break this this text up, these six verses up into three parts, two verses each. I want to think of these as laying out steps toward obedience for us in the spiritual warfare. Step number one, you see in verses one and two, deny the flesh. Deny the flesh. Step number two, you see it in verses three and four, choose the correct weapons. Choose the correct weapons. And step number three in verses five and six, control the mind. Control the mind. So deny the flesh, choose the correct weapons, and control the mind. We see this this argument for denying the flesh in verses 1 and 2. I think it's there kind of implicitly in in what Paul is dealing with with this church. There's a rumor in this church about Paul. You see it there where the hyphen starts in verse 1, right in the middle of those two verses. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. Now that's not Paul describing himself. That's Paul quoting some of his detractors and haters in Corinth. 
That's what they say about Paul. Now, when Paul is here, he all humble and meek. He ain't got no strong words. But now when he ain't here, he talk all big and bad. He write all these sharp letters and, and he got a whole lot to say. That's what they're saying about Paul. And with reason, because Paul, Paul, well, Paul can turn his tongue into a whip. Look with me in 1 Corinthians. So keep your finger there in 2 Corinthians. Turn back with me in 1 Corinthians. This is the first letter that he had written to that church. There's another letter that he wrote that is mentioned but that we don't have. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul, is, Paul gives him a bit of a, a tongue lashing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he comes right out the gate, verses 12 to 15. He says this, what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He was that man, I thank God I didn't baptize none of y'all, except Crispus and Gaius. So that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Right off the break, he starts uh, correcting them for the divisions and the cliques that are there in the church. Jump down to chapter 9, verse 1. Apparently, people were upset that Paul uh, made his living from the gospel ministry. And so he had to speak into that. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? He's just always kind of having to correct the church. Jump down to chapter 11, verses 17 and 18. Now he's talking about them at the Lord's Supper. They showing up at the supper and eating before everybody gets there, so ain't no food left when people show up on CP time. Some folks getting drunk at the supper. Paul says, now in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Paul's like, man, it's better if y'all didn't even have church services. It's not the supper that you eat. Not like that. Over to chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. Paul there now sort of showing them the priority of love when so many of them have been getting all puffed up about their gifts. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move, remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. In so many words, he was saying to them, you guys are a noisy gong. You ain't nothing. And you don't have nothing if you don't have love. Strong words of rebuke. Chapter 14, verse 20. Paul says there very simply, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And it seems the case that they were not only salty, having received these kind of reproofs in this letter, they were salty when they got this letter. So look back in chapter 4, verses 18 to 20. They're already salty. Paul says there, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? That's your mama saying, don't make me come up there. Don't make me come back there. 
So some folks were apparently already salty. And if you jump back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and look at verse 9, Paul is dealing with the rumor that they have been circulating about him. So he writes in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 9, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. So they're saying Paul is a chump who can't even preach. Oh no, he write bad, but when he present, man, he ain't nothing. Now what I want you to notice is Paul's response. In verses 1 and 2 of 2 Corinthians 10, he responds by reversing the rumor. Notice what he says. He says, now, you guys say he's humble when present and bold when absent. But Paul starts the letter, this verse, by saying, let me be humble in this letter. Let, let me be meek and humble like Jesus Christ. Christ has changed my life a bit. He has moved into my life, and I'm, I'm not what I used to be. And, and so he says, now, in the letter, since you think I'm only bold in writing, in the letter, I'm, I'm going to be humble here. I'm going to be meek. But then he says in verse 2, notice this. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with, with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. See, I love Paul. He's got those real Christian ways of saying, y'all better recognize. <laughs> he says, I'm begging you now because I don't want to show out then. I'm going to be gentle in the letter so I don't have to be rough in person. I mean, keep in mind who this is. Paul, Paul's a gangster. This, this is Saul. This is the man who was standing by holding clothes while they killed Stephen. This is the man we find two chapters later with orders in his pocket to go to Damascus and arrest Christians, men and women, for following Jesus. This is the man who describes himself in 1 Timothy that he was a, a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Paul ain't no chump. And you can take the man out the gangster, but there's always a little gangster left in the man. And Paul like, y'all, y'all, y'all tripping because if I have to show up and be bold as I count on being bold, it's going to be on. It's going to be on. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that there's a little pinch of flesh coming out of Paul right here. Y'all know how it go. Y'all know how it go. You hear somebody talking about you, they, you know, y'all. Oh, I tell you what. <laughs> wait till I see them. And then what we say, wait till I see him. I think there's a little flesh rising up in Paul here. He human like us. Now, when you read Paul in his letters, don't read him like he's a superhuman Christian. He put his toga on one leg at a time like us too, right? I think there's a little bit of flesh coming up in Paul, which is why he ends verse 2 by, by sort of making reference to the flesh, making reference to the sin nature. It's like he catches himself. Like, you know what? All right, well, hold on. Okay. I'm a Christian now. I'm a Christian now. Can't act like I used to. And he wants to put his, put his flesh in check. Now, here we see the difficulty of the Christian life and the Christian ministry. The flesh or the sin nature will get things twisted up. 
kindness gets mistaken as cowardice. Boldness gets interpreted as bullying. Right? So, so what is extremely important is that we recognize the way the flesh can be at work in both minister and people. And not only between minister and people, but the way the flesh is at work between the Christian and their conversation with the world. And, and how the flesh is at work between husband and wife and parent and child. And, and in every relationship, the flesh is just kind of waiting to get out, looking for an opportunity to spring out and make you act like the old man. Make you act like Saul rather than Paul or Ron rather than Thabiti. So we have to put the flesh to death. Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body or the flesh, you will live. The first thing we got to do is put the sin nature to death by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. If we want to live obediently to God, we cannot let the flesh have influence because the flesh is at war with the Spirit. The flesh will never please God. The flesh wants what the world wants and what sin wants, not what God wants. So, very simply, an application, never give your flesh permission to act. Don't make excuses for it. Don't rationalize it. Don't justify it. Don't entertain it. Don't laugh at it. Don't wink at it. Don't coddle it. You will feel it when it's rising in your spirit. You will feel it as it tries to push its way forward, and it will be speaking to you justification. This is justified. This is right. This is what ought to happen. And in those moments, we are in war. We are in a battle. And we can give way to the flesh, and the flesh will produce death. Or we can grab the flesh by the neck and put it to death and live by the Spirit which gives life. So most fundamental is that we learn to hear ourselves when the flesh is speaking and the flesh is coming on and we learn to put it to death. Second thing, step two, choose the correct weapons in the warfare. See that there in verses three and four? For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Paul says, first of all, there's some wrong weapons that we, we don't want to use. He says, we walk in the flesh. Now here, flesh has a different connotation, has a different denotation. Flesh here means we, we are in this physical world. We, we are human beings in a fallen world. It's not like we're walking through the world disembodied spirits. No, we, we're in the flesh, we're in the world, and the world affects us. However, notice what he says. We do not wage war according to the flesh. You've heard it said we are in the world, but what? Not of the world. We're fighting a war against the world, the flesh, and the devil, but we cannot use the weapons of the flesh. They are powerless. 
You can write this down and look at it later, but Paul writes in Colossians 2, uh, a long little section there at the second half of Colossians 2, making precisely this argument that, that our flesh is powerless to subdue uh, sin and powerless to produce sanctification. So we make up rules all the time. Do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. But those things aren't what get us where we need to be. We need a different set of weaponry. He writes in Ephesians 6, verse 12, these words, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Our warfare is spiritual, not material or physical. We can be affected physically, but the source of the battle is spiritual. And if we want to win, we want to use the right weapons. We don't want to show up to the war with the wrong weapons. The United States military, at least since the Civil War, has been assigning its soldiers bayonets. You know what a bayonet is? It's a long knife, sword-like thing that you attach on the end of a rifle. Well, back in the days of the Civil War, when you could, you'd have to fire your musket or your rifle and then reload with the powder and all that good stuff, uh, there wouldn't be so many reloads you could get in before the enemy was close. And so the bayonet would have to be attached to the weapon so that you could fight the enemy but not quite be hand-to-hand, right? And, and the whole trick of the thing was, was to, to make sure you got the bayonet on before the enemy actually got up on you so that you could use it effectively. It turns out only 1% of, of people were ever killed in battle using a bayonet. It's an ineffective weapon. Pretty soon, military strategists figured that out. And so the bayonet began to get shorter until it basically became a knife, a serrated knife that's still assigned to people. But if you ever meet an American soldier on the battlefield, you don't want to run out the house with a knife. Because now he's carrying a machine gun, fully automatic, and he's got hand grenades, and he's got a rocket launcher, and he's got drones, and he's got tanks, and a jet fighter, and probably some other stuff that they're getting off Star Trek that we don't even know about yet, right? In other words, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. And and in many cases in our spiritual warfare, when we are just trying to muscle it through in our strength, when we're trying to just sort of press through in our own power, when we're trusting on the the sort of reserves and the energy and the wisdom of the flesh, we're bringing knives to a nuclear war. And it's a bad strategy. When your captain is king of kings and lord of lords and has all power in his hand. So we want to use spiritual weapons to fight a spiritual war. This is what Paul says in verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The right weapons are spiritual weapons. And spiritual weapons, notice, are not powered by the flesh. They have divine power. In other words, behind the flesh is our puny human nature. But behind the spiritual weapon is the omnipotence of Almighty God. God who so much power that He created all of the universe with a word. God with so much power that He raises the dead, causes the lame to walk, the blind to see. 
God with so much power, he can make the sun stand still. Actually, the earth rotating around the sun stands still. God with so much power that he can, he can do anything but fail. Indeed, God's power never fails. And when we use his weapons, we cannot fail. Notice his divine power is able to destroy strongholds. Stronghold is like a, a fortress or a bunker. It's where soldiers would go in order to protect themselves and to protect their stuff against an enemy attack. If they were about to be overrun by the enemy, they would retreat to the stronghold, which normally had strong walls and other kinds of barriers to, to keep the enemy out and would hold up there and fight from that vantage point. Now, don't miss this. Our enemy, the flesh, cooperates with the world. The flesh is the inside agent that the world has in this warfare. Our enemy, the flesh, and the devil seek to build strongholds in our lives, in our territory, to maintain ground that they've captured. And they look to bunker there, and they look to, if not bunker there themselves, imprison us in those strongholds. The enemy is defeated. Christ has conquered the city. Christ has conquered your life if he's a Christian. He's, he's moved in. And, and he has been steadily pushing out the darkness. But now Satan, though defeated, the flesh, though defeated, doesn't want to give up any ground. And so it looks to build strongholds, little patches of territory that it's, it's trying to maintain in order to continue a presence in our lives. Notice what the verse says. But God's power through God's weapons destroys the enemy's strongholds. Every little foothold the enemy has built in our lives, God has given us weapons for absolutely destroying it, for tearing it down, for reducing it to rubble so that the victory of Christ is more and more complete in our lives. Well, what, what are these weapons? Well, it's the word of God. It's the fellowship of the saints. It's the communion, which we celebrated the other week. It's all the means of grace, like prayer, that God has given us. These look weak and insignificant in the calculation of the world. But they are mighty through God for destroying the enemy's presence in our lives. These strongholds in our lives then, as we'll see in a moment, become sort of patterns of thinking and patterns of behavior that in our own flesh we seem unable to break. And we may, we may all have our examples of what they are. Things we do that we know we shouldn't do, that we tried not to do. Ways of thinking that we know aren't right. But no matter how we're counseled and, and, and what we consider and study, we, we find ourselves in those patterns of thinking. These are the strongholds that, that are built in our lives that, that God will reduce to rubble if we use the right weapons, spiritual weapons, like prayer and the word of God and so on. So how do we apply this? Well, let me just suggest that some of us may be trying to power through spiritual warfare in our own strength. As we said before, we may be trying to grit our way through. But laying over there on the coffee table or on the bookcase is a sword with divine power. 
in too many of our homes gathering dust. We wake up each morning and we're already thinking about the routine for the day. Got to get breakfast for the kids, got to get dressed for work. When I get to work, I got this meeting, got that report done. Oh, I hope I don't see them. You know, <laughs> y'all know how I go. Stop me when I lie. The, the warfare has begun from the moment you open your eyes. And, 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 and some of us, right? Rather than set the alarm 30 minutes earlier or, okay, 15 minutes earlier, and hit our knees as the first act of the waking day to access the power of God through prayer? We, we lie there letting the tape run. And we try to get up enough strength to get out of bed and get into the routine. And we do manage on autopilot to get dressed and to brush our teeth and to get the kids out the door and to make our way to the car to go to work. And, and maybe about the time we pull in the parking lot, we remember we haven't even prayed. So what's the application? Do not neglect the spiritual weapons that God has given us. Read your Bible every day. Unhurriedly, prayerfully. Read it, journal through it, take notes, talk with God through it. Pray every day. Begin your day with prayer. Begin your day on your knees, asking the Lord, seeking the Lord. Let, let us not be practical atheists who, who while we formally say wonderful things about God, we practically have no relationship with him living in our own power, in our own strength. Let's do those things we know give us power and do those things we know bring us in contact with the God who loves us and has saved us. So just one application. Use the spiritual weapons every day. Pray. Read the Bible. Fellowship with the saints. Encourage each other daily as, as the day of Christ is approaching. Do not forsake the assembling together with one another. Those weapons look weak, but they are mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. Now, when we have put the flesh to death and we have chosen the right weapons which destroy the, the strongholds of the, the enemy's presence, then we're ready to come to this third step, which is to control the mind. To control the mind. We, we're not going to be able to obey God until we bring our thoughts captive. This is what Paul says in verses 5 and 6. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. See there what we're called to do. We're called to demolish worldly ideas. You probably figured this out already, but one of the main battlefields in our spiritual warfare is between our ears. It's what's happening in our heads. It's what's happening in our minds. The strongholds of verse 4 are made up of the arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God in verse 5. In other words, strongholds are built from bricks of anti-God thought. 
Before we can win the war through obedience, we have to destroy some arguments and lofty opinions that exalt themselves against our God. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 12, 1 and 2, we can no longer be conformed to this world. We can't be squeezing the mold of this world, but we have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. When God saved you and when God saved me, he didn't give us perfect minds such that all of our thoughts, all of our days are only glorious and sublime. You and I ain't got no halos, right? But he did begin to work of renewing our mind, of washing our conscience, of giving us new thoughts and new patterns of thoughts. And, and beloved, that work is indeed work. You don't begin to think like Jesus by osmosis. We begin to think like Jesus and to pattern our thoughts after him by actively reading his word and applying his word and having our minds shaped by his word. And we ought to do that with the same kind of vigilance as a soldier has who knows he's in a war. The battlefield is happening right here between the ears. And these arguments and opinions are a threat to our faith in particular. Now, I just want to apply this to us. Because some of us swim in the heady intellectual waters of this world. Some of us swim in the the halls of power in this world where there's always an argument, always an opinion and almost never consideration of God. So some of us love to to read the writings of the, the latest public intellectuals who are saying this thing or that thing which seems to be exciting and on the news channels and, and selling lots of books. And some of us are writing memos for legislators and senators and engaged in the political arguments and talking points which are deciding literally the fates of millions of people in this country and literally the, the engagement of this country with other nations in the world. We live in the most powerful city in the world. We live in a city where ideas are all over the place and where ideas literally affect lives, yours, mine, almost every neighbor we know. Here's the question. Of all those ideas floating around, all of those arguments, how many of them are ideas and arguments for the gospel and for Jesus and for the centrality of God's word in all of this decision-making and all of this pontificating? Almost none of it, is it? And I, I really, it doesn't matter what issue we're talking about. So some of you, you, you like to read things, for example, on, uh, on race and racism and the history of race and racism in this country and the, the need to be vigilant against race and racism in this country. Now, I need to ask you, in your reading and your thinking, who's influencing you most? Is it the scripture or is it Tommy Hissy Coates? Is it Paul or is it Cornel West? Is it Jesus or is it John MacArthur? See, because even preachers don't substitute for this. So so what's shaping your thinking most? And when we we write and when we speak, are, are are we sort of spitting up the Bible? Or are we regurgitating what we've heard from the world? And again, some of you have a calling, a vocation to, to politics. Praise God. We need more Christians, not less Christians, in the halls of power. And, and you're there serving your constituency. You're serving your, your senator or your congressman, your congressperson. 
and, and as a part of your vocation. You're called to weigh into sort of public discussion. In fact, you are, you are shaping those discussions. It, it, you know, it almost scared me to death when I realized that the real people running Congress are about 23 years old. <laughs> All the staffers and the workers behind the scene. What influences your thinking the most? What arguments and ideas are erected in your mind? Is it the talking points of your political party? Or is it book, chapter, and verse from the Bible? Are you expressing more loyalty to political ideology? Has that become a stronghold for you? Such that you sit the Bible aside. And, and you don't test your own thinking. Now, what's vital about this is not that we use the Bible to test the other man's thinking. That has its place. What's vital about this is that we're using the Bible to test our thinking. The strongholds in our mind. The arguments and the ideas that exalt themselves against God are first in our head. And we have to check those. Right? So what's uppermost in your mind? The arguments of the world or the arguments of Scripture? Because notice what we need to do. We need to not only tear down those lofty arguments that exalt themselves against God. And, and let, me, let me, if I can say one other thing on that point, just, just to save you some time. You and I are never going to be popular as Christians. Amen. Christian faith is never going to be intellectually acceptable and respectable in the secular world. Amen. Amen. Get over that. Right. Get over that. They hated Jesus. Never a better man than Jesus, the Son of God. They hated Jesus. We're not going to be treated better than our master. What they said of him and did to him, they will say of us and do to us. And if they don't, we have reason to suspect we may be not living like Christians. So, so forget about popularity and acceptability and think more heavily about faithfulness and being faithful to the word of God. Now, for that to be the case... We've got to bring every thought captive. You see it there? We take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. So that's the positive side. On the negative side, we've got to tear some stuff down. On the positive side, we've got to lay hold to our thoughts and make them serve Jesus. Now, notice something here. This text does not allow for free thought. The text doesn't say tear down the, strong, the strongholds and then go thinking what you want to think. It ain't no middle ground. The text says, tear down the stronghold, which was a form of captivity, and now come be captive to Christ. Come now be, be, be joined to Christ, be, be taken over by Christ. Paul has a similar idea in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So all those philosophies are enslaving. To be delivered from them, we have to then be enslaved to Christ. Right? So, it'd be really easy at this point to slip into thinking that you tear down the strongholds and then you run around in the world of free thought. Or in saying tearing down the strongholds, ah, what Paul means is we should commit to positive thinking. New age thought. That is not what Paul has in mind. Amen. Nearly all the positive thinking stuff out there does not point to Jesus. You ever notice that? It's entirely possible 
to become a person wrapped up with positive thinking and have no thoughts of God. It's just another kind of stronghold. No, Paul says here, better than positive thinking or the kind of self-talk that we do as a kind of personal therapy is thinking like Jesus. And for that to happen, we have to have our thoughts made captive to Christ. How do we have our thoughts taken captive to Christ? You're going to figure out real soon, and I only have one application in this sermon. It's by reading his word. It's by thinking his thoughts after him. It's by having the Word shape our thoughts. It's by spending so much time in the Word, so much time repeatedly in the same parts of the Word, so much time in different parts of the Word, that the way we naturally and instinctively begin to think is formed by the Word. It's shaped by the Bible. That we have, as it were, this ongoing conversation with God because we've been so soaked in His Word. So that when we're talking with our friend and they need counsel, there's there's Scripture just at the ready. When we're singing songs of worship in the morning service and and we're singing songs, we can't help but think, ah, that phrase right there reminds me of this text. So that the word of Christ is dwelling richly in our hearts. If, If we would do only one thing to win this war through obedience, it would be to read and study his word and do what it says. The last phrase is important, and do what it says. To have our thoughts captive to Christ means we no longer think our own thoughts. We no longer give ourselves permission to let our minds roam around unaccountable. Instead, Jesus holds our thoughts hostage, and we follow the pattern of sound words, which are in the Bible. Now, one other thing I want to push against right here, because I think it's... it's, it's the case in some Christian circles that, that there's this sort of underlying, often unexpressed suspicion that the Bible's not enough. And, and, and that's why many well-meaning Christians just turn away from it. They, they, they say there's no, nothing in the Bible about gentrification. That word's not in the Bible. And of course it's not. But that does not mean therefore the Bible is insufficient for us figuring out how to think about gentrification. So what we need is an active, deep commitment to the sufficiency of Scripture that God has told us enough and that if we mind what God says, even though he never used the word gentrification, we'll discover he ain't surprised by the word gentrification. That he has laid things down for us in his word that are enough for us to live for his name's sake and to live for our glory, our joy in him. It's all right. You know, I brought my amen this morning. I don't, you know. <laughs> the Bible is enough. Thoughts must be taken captive. Notice now in verse 6 then, when all that's happened, we've put the flesh to death, we have chosen the right weapons that, that pull down strongholds, and now we are having our thoughts taken captive to Christ. Verse 6 concludes our section by saying, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now, keep in mind, this is not Saul. So when he talks about being ready to punish every disobedience, he's not turning the church into an angry mob. 
right? That somebody disobeyed something in the Word, somebody got caught in sin and, or, or something of that sort, and in the church, like, ooh, we, we don't love you no more. You got to get out of here. It's not what he means. He's still dealing with what happens between our ears, right? So that now there should be a readiness in us to avenge disobedience in our lives in the name of Christ. Now, now for that to be the case, we have to hate our sin. We have to hate disobedience. We have to disdain the ways in which our flesh wants things other than Christ. And, and we got to refuse to coddle it. And, and for us to do that, we, we've, we've, got to, we've got to know the patterns of our own thinking, which amount to the strongholds. So that we're taking the, the, the sort of um, the ramming rod of God and we're, we're knocking down those fortresses. We're knocking down those towers. We're clearing the rubble so that Christ may take our thoughts captive. And when Christ begins to take our thoughts captive, we want to take the posture of an avenger. Avenging our own disobedience. Avenging our own wayward thoughts. And notice what the text says. Bringing our obedience actually to completion, right? So, now this is an interesting thing. Our obedience isn't complete until we avenge our disobedience. I'll put it a different way. If you discover, and I discover some pattern of disobedience in our lives, and we say, hey, okay, that, that's disobedience. Let me go over here and look over here and do some obedience now. Well, even in the doing of the obedience, our obedience isn't complete until we fix this thing over here where we've been disobeying, until we avenge the disobedience. Jesus used words like this. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your arm causes you to sin, cut it off. Right? So this is the language of sanctification. We, we need to be people who are about plucking out our eyes, cutting off our arms metaphorically, so that we give no access to sin and the flesh and disobedience. We avenge those things in that way that we might obey God more fully. Beloved, obedience is a beautiful word. Obeying God is a blessed life. We live in a world where even the thought of obedience is offensive to people. I won't obey anybody but myself. Who are you to tell me what to do? Well, Jesus is Lord. Jesus has made us. And if we're Christians, Jesus has redeemed us. He's actually paid for our lives in his blood so that we don't belong to ourselves any longer. We belong to the Lord and Redeemer who bought us. We are slaves to Christ if we are Christians, happy slaves, joyful slaves, because his, his rule in our life, it's blessed, it's good. And the way to blessedness is in obedience to him. Now, maybe you're here and you're not yet a Christian and you, you've been bristling at this thought of obedience. You've been thinking, why, why don't I want to obey old dead book? Why don't I want to obey this pastor? The pastor's always trying to tell people what to do. They ain't perfect either. Amen. Hallelujah. You part right, but you're also colossally wrong. You didn't make yourself. You didn't even wake yourself this morning. The blood that flows through your veins, you didn't put there. God did. 
Your life is not your own. And living that way is at the heart of sin. Going your own way, going astray, leaving aside the word of God and the requirements of God for your life, that is by definition what the Bible calls sin. And the Bible tells us that for our sin, God is angry. So this same God whose weapons are mighty and omnipotent and destroy enemies, this same God in that same power is now looking at you in a righteous anger because you have acted like he doesn't exist and he has no say in your life when he made you. Your rebellion will get you judged to hell. But this same God is full of love and compassion and mercy. And in this same book, which you maybe came into the room thinking was dead, but is very much alive, in this same book, he tells us how we can escape that judgment. It's by confessing our sins, turning away from our sin, and putting our faith in his one unique son, Jesus Christ, who came into the world, lived a perfectly righteous life in our place. So all of the disobedience, Christ replaces with his obedience. And he was crucified for our sin. He never committed any sins of his own. He didn't deserve that judgment. He voluntarily stood in our place and took the condemnation that we deserve. That's what's happening on the cross. This is why we sing about the cross and we celebrate that. It may be weird to people who've never thought about the gospel. Why are these people singing about a man who was killed on a cross 2,000 years ago? Because 2,000 years ago, God nailed our sins to the cross with his son. And three days later, God raised him from the grave to show that his sacrifice was accepted and that there was a victory over death and a victory over judgment in his son, Jesus Christ. And now he calls you to obey that good news by confessing your sin, putting your faith in Jesus and following him in the obedience that comes from faith for the rest of your life. Now, that may be hard at times, Indeed, very difficult, but it's worth it. And in the end of it is a life without sin, is a life without pain, a life without trauma, a, a, a life without rebellion and disobedience and guilt and shame. At the end of it is a life that's full of joy and glory because it's a life with Jesus where you will see God as he is and know only his love. We exist as a church to help you discover the truth of this for your own life. We would like nothing more than to help you sort of think through the Bible's teaching about how you escape sin and judgment and how you may live for the glory of God in his love and one day in his presence. Because Jesus is coming again to gather his people to himself and into his kingdom and to judge the world. Now, what you don't want to have happen on that day is to take in your position on the enemy side of the line. You want to have left that rebel army and moved over and joined Christ through faith. That's the way you live eternally. That's the way you live in victory. And Christian, this is our calling. We put the flesh to death. We fight with spiritual weapons. And we bring our obedience to completion. And never think of your obedience as drudgery. Think of it as victory. 
victory by the grace of Christ and the power of God. Walk in obedience in the light, and there Christ is in the light with us, and his blood cleanses us of all sin and unrighteousness, and the hope of eternal glory fills our soul. Let's be victorious in the victory Christ has won. Let's pray together. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs>